0: Hey, I'm sex, love, and relationship therapist, Dr. Laura Berman. And for the past 30 years, I've been helping people just like you learn to love and be loved better. Here on the Language of Love Conversations, I'm talking to some of the world's most influential and revolutionary experts, thought leaders, spiritual teachers, and celebrities about love, sex, and relationships from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. And that way, my goal is to awaken your mind, body, and soul. It's time to become fluent in the language of love. Annalyn McCord is an American actress, writer, director, producer. She's known for playing those vixen and vamp roles, usually of a darker nature. She's been in all kinds of television shows you're familiar with and movies, has a new movie, coming out right now called Condition of Return that we're going to get into. But what I'm most excited to talk to Annalyn about is what she's been doing in her free time, not just in her acting career. She is really invested in helping to bring awareness and healing to the sex slave industry and has been very vocal about her own healing from sexual abuse and trauma. What has worked for her and what hasn't. And I'm so impressed with her bravery and willingness to be a light that can guide all of us on our own healing journey. So I'm thrilled to introduce you to Annalyn McCord. Annalyn McCord, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm so happy to be here. We've been trying to make this happen for a while. So here we are. We did it. Here we are. And it's not, you know, everything's in divine timing. And we were talking right before we got on the air that we are both Georgia girls, right? You grew up in Georgia. Yeah. So did I. All over
1: Georgia, actually. So I'm, I'm, take your pick. I'm kind of from all over this the, really? the
0: beach state. <laughs> I grew up in St. Simons Island, Georgia, uh, off well. the southeast coast
1: yeah amazing. ok. Well, I'm in my savannah house right
0: now, so I'm actually in Georgia as we speak, <laughs> and you still stay there. See, for me, I just that you know no offense to the South because I know a lot of my peeps are from the South. But for me personally, we moved there when I was eight from New York City. and we were like the only Jewish family. And we weren't observant, but I guess we were culturally Jewish. And my parents didn't think anything of putting on the school form that we were Jewish. and on the first day of school, it was like this crazy extravaganza where this girl came up to me and said, where's your horns and tail? And, another, you know, cause all Jews have horns and tails and kids were throwing pennies at me. And I was like, wait, what happened? So the whole experience of that traumatized me so much that I went as far North as I could when I got, went to college and I never went back. I get you. I, I
1: personally had my own Georgia trauma, but and went to New York too. I actually spend most of my time in New York, and I have yeah. investment properties here, so I'm grateful for that. But I was homeschooled, so I was completely sheltered from the entire situation. But it is still growing up here, or at least the experience that I had was we were 50 years behind. I mean yeah. my father was like women obey their husbands and it was just, I was like I'm never getting married. That's the deal. I'm not into the, any of this at 15 years old. I couldn't get in, out enough fast. I couldn't get out fast enough. I moved to New York and that was a culture shock for a girl literally born wow. in Georgia. But I'm I'm grateful for the aspects that I do really love about the south which is yeah. Some of that southern cooking, honey, and when you know uh, the hospitality, uh, the concept of hospitality for sure. But I do absolutely. I can only imagine what that was like, especially as an eight-year-old. Kids can be so mean, but it's all yeah. programming, and we're seeing that in our world right now. Yes. The programming is absolutely terrifying. What's going on? So yeah. uh, I'm sorry that the little you had that experience, but yeah. I'm sure. Is part of why you became the amazing woman warrior that you are.
0: It's totally why. And I do have deep love for the South. And I do love going back there, like the smell of the low country and being in the marshes and cast netting and crabbing. And I've brought my kids down there for the summers. There's so many beautiful parts of it. But that part, the anti-Semitic, xenophobic, homophobic, The Bible, phobic, 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 right? And, And I can't even imagine being homeschooled and being just like immersed in that. But you're right that it did. And I've talked about this before, that going through that, being always kind of an outcast and never quite fitting in unless I accepted Jesus as my savior, which... As my mother told me when I considered it just to fit in, she's like, that's fine. But if the Nazis come again, you're still Jewish, whatever you accept. And I remember that she's like, and you think you're going to do this to be accepted, but you'll always be the Jewish girl that's now converted. And that really, really changed the way I looked at it. And I decided to just embrace my weird. And then fast forward, as I went into like a very strange profession at the time I did, no one else was a sex therapist And some of the things that I did where people were like, Aren't you worried that people strange think you're strange or weird? And I was like, strange or weird. I'm not afraid of you know, I never fit in. So I don't need to. So there is freedom in that. But anyway, enough about me. Let's talk about you. (laughs) Well, I will say
1: one thing to that point. And those individuals who, you know, who say those things and do those things, they fail to remember that Yeshua. A Hebrew name to the man that they call Jesus is actually Jewish. (laughs) Jesus was a Jew, everybody. Hello. I
0: know. And they publish in the Brunswick News and it would I would dread it every year because the next day it was in the ether and the kids were saying stuff. But they would publish this huge story of Easter every year at Easter in the Brunswick News And the story would go, you know, the usual story of the resurrection. But the part about the Jews was very explicit, which was that it wasn't just an individual or certain people or whatever. It was the Jews. The Hmm. Jews told the Caesar that if you basically that if you don't kill Jesus, you're not a friend of the Romans or something. I mean, I don't remember. But basically, the Jews were the reason that Christ was killed. Right. So that was the common understanding in my little yeah. hometown, which is misguided and not. Very. And, read. you know,
1: I'm I'm one of the lucky ones because I, for whatever reason, my father like he it was his great dream to be Jewish, so he really? had his bumper stick uh, like a bumper sticker on the car. I'm a messianic Jew. <laughs> I was like, You're ah, not. So he yeah. was a Jew for Jesus. <laughs> I've, heard for Jesus. I've heard of those. Yeah. At he doesn't have you know Jewish ancestry though, which was the part. Yeah. But I did get to make his dream come true, and and about. 11 years ago, I, I surprised him with a trip to Israel and we landed and we did a midnight bike ride through Jerusalem and it was, you know, the dream of his life. And Uh, that was, thankfully gave me the more appropriate view of what, what the history is that Jesus wasn't white and he didn't speak English (laughs) and his real name is a Hebrew name, Yeshua.
0: (laughs) All true. All true. And he was unbelievably powerful and brilliant. Yeah. An amazing, beautiful prophet, an amazing prophet prophet, indeed. Yeah. Okay. So we have so much to talk about and I have followed you for some time. And one of the reasons that I was so excited to share you with my peeps here is we spend so much time talking about love, about sex, about relationships and interwoven into all of that is this idea of healing, right? And how we are always going to attract in and be attracted to love, and people and circumstances and individuals that reflect our level of healing, right? So that the more that we heal, not only the deeper and more profound and more satisfying our relationships with everyone can be, the better our lives can be, but it's something that is so fundamental. And I feel like it's being called for more than ever before, because when we do heal, whatever those big T or little T traumas are. And I know this is a huge area of work for you that you're very public about in terms of your personal life, but also in the work you do in the world. But when we do that, then we can become friends with our shadows, right? Then we can like face those parts of ourselves we don't want to see. And then that creates an openness to let go of judgment of other people as well, as we let go of the judgment of ourselves, as we heal those parts of ourselves that we don't want to be with. And so My absolute belief, I don't even think I wouldn't even call it a theory, is that the more that we heal ourselves, the more we become friends with our shadows, the less strife, conflict, division, pointing the finger of blame, war, you know, take it all the way up the flagpole, there will be. Oh
1: I couldn't agree more and I would I would only say that I I believe we get to a point where we dance with judgment we dance with that it is and I talk to people a lot about that that notion of of dancing with the shadow because you will have an infiltration of thoughts that are not yours until the moment you attach to them, and that's the dance, right? The dance is it allows you to hear the thoughts, like what is she wearing? Anna Land, stop that! <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's okay. Attaching to it like seriously, where did she buy that? Does she not know how to like, you know, you following yeah. the what yeah. person and then like, excuse me, ma'am, do you need a mirror? Like, where did you get that horrible outfit? You clearly didn't see yourself when you look. That's then going all the way into the shadow. But there, there is still once integration with the light and the shadow has huh. thankfully begun to take root. There's still all this cacophony of vibrational thoughts in the world that pop into our minds yes. and we don't even want it to happen. And I think that to your point about going all the way up the levels of, of being able to integrate our shadows so that we we don't be a part of creating war and everywhere in between from, from you know, judging someone walking by to creating a war and everywhere in between, it goes back to, My favorite, 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 favorite philosopher, favorite quote from my favorite philosopher, Lao Tzu, Chinese philosopher, if we want peace in the world, we must have peace in the nations. If we want peace in the nations, we must have peace in the cities. If we want peace in the cities, we must have peace in the neighborhoods. If we want peace in the neighborhoods, we have to have peace in the homes. And if we want peace in the homes, we must have peace in the hearts. We love to skip a lot of those steps. Yeah, we do. And then we point a bunch of fingers talking about blame. Well, they shouldn't be doing that over there. Yeah. And what it's part do true. we play in the vibration of war, of conflict, oh. of, of hurt and harm and judgment and blame and shame if we're doing it in our own heart to ourselves? We will do it in our home to our families. They and we will do it in our neighborhoods to our community and so on and so forth. And then we'll see there's no peace in the world and we'll throw our hands in the air so confused as to why there's war. No, honey. You've been warring all day in your mind. <laughs> that doesn't count. I'm so sorry to tell you. It's as much your personal war as yeah. it is a war going on in Eastern Europe, in obviously the Middle East, and in all of these places and things that we're seeing right now. This is a projection of the nastiness that is unconscious in our minds and it has come into the world. You don't build a house without a blueprint. Yeah. And you can't create a blueprint without a thought in your mind that originates the idea and the vision. Someone had a war thought. yeah, And from fights and arguments in their house to the streets to all-out war in our countries and our world, that is how it starts. And it trickles down
0: from the mind. Everything originates yeah. in the mind. It does, and and the but opposite so is love. It. So does love, exactly. In fact, I was just sharing this the other day that I'm a huge fan of David Hawkins, who's a scientist and wrote this book called The Map of Consciousness. Yes. Uh, or he created the map Map of Consciousness. His book is Power versus Force, where he kind of introduces it. But he, you could geek out on his science, guys. And I talk about this all the time, but. One of the things that I love that he calculated and figured out, because one of the the pieces of genius that works he did that this map of consciousness is that he figured out with all these different scientists and modalities how to calibrate the energetic frequency of different emotional states and in our bodies, right? So what frequency that creates in our body, because we're all vibrating atoms and our bodies hold a vibration. And he and lots of other scientists at the Heart Math Institute and everywhere else are demonstrating how our individual vibration, our body's energetic frequency, affects everything and everyone around us. Like that's quantum love, which I'm always talking about. But okay. here's the cool thing that one person holding a state of love and reverence compensates energetically for 750. Thousand people who are living in shame and hate. Isn't that amazing? That
1: I get chills all over my body. (laughs) Oh my god, it's beautiful. Yeah, Yeah. I I found Dr. David Hawkins and Power versus Force several years ago, and it blew my mind open. Obviously, you know him, but he did thirty years of study to calibrate these emotions. He did not take this lightly, and he would you know even with he would do kinesiology body testing the body cannot lie and mm-hmm. and that's kind of what i found with my trauma was how you know the body keeps the score by bessel van der kok another great book that just talks about how the body tells the truth even when the mind and the words coming out of your mouth can say a whole bunch of stuff the body doesn't lie so with kinesiology which david hawkins was mr expertise on he calibrated these emotions through with tens of thousands of people all over the world. All different races, all
0: different ages, all different types. Yeah,
1: it's because we're made of energy emotions or energy, feelings or energy. My couch right here has a, yes. an energetic resonance. If you measure it with a bio well device, you will get the EMF, of, you know, and determine. And it's, it's made of linen. And I've heard that linen is apparently a really high vibrational yes. form. Of so yeah, good, uh, good for the body to wear linen. Not so much the satin that I'm rocking right now, but whatever it looks. It looks cute. looks great though. It looks real cute. <laughs> thank you but yeah that was huge for me the really big part of it for me was the the low vibrations that he calibrates and i would talk i talk a lot about this but the low emotions that he calibrates the most profound thing to me was that right above death calibrates shame
0: yes that's the lowest frequency emotion that blew my mind when i first learned that ages ago too that shame then comes guilt but shame is the above yeah. death Absolutely. is like the lowest vibration you can hold and i think that's so relevant both that and this idea of of moving toward love in service not only to your own healing but the healing of the world both the shame and the love i think really apply to the work that you do with love storm right and the crossover the crossover point yes
1: that he talks about is at 150, the the highest low vibration energy is pride, but all you need is an ounce of courage to tip over into the love vibration. And that's the other part that I love so much is is courage is the turning point.
0: Yes, and getting to curiosity and openness. All you have to be is like open. And then that is where you move into what I call the quantum love zone. And if you can spend 51% of your time in just curiosity, openness, and courage, and above joy, forgiveness, love, acceptance, all those yummier states of being, if you could spend 51% of the time in those vibrations authentically, I don't mean bypassing and pretending that everything's perfect when you're feeling like shit. We'll talk right. about that in a minute. But yeah. when you a can do of that,
1: you- does that, yeah.
0: When you can do this, though, your entire world changes for the better. Individually, like in your little universe, but also, as I was saying earlier, you're positively affecting everyone and everything around you. So, I want to talk. I had no order. I have all these topics I want to talk to you, no order in which I want to talk about them. So they're just kind of coming up naturally. But one of them is, is is Love Storm, which is this project you started in support of ending the sex slavery. So. I first, it's relevant to what we were just talking about, and you'll see why, guys, in a minute. But first, I want to know if you'll share a little bit of your history and what brought you to this particular population to serve, which I'm so grateful you are. I mean, we need more and more warriors for the victims of the sex slave trade. And I want you to share some of the statistics too, which will blow your mind. But I'm wondering if you can share that, some of the history of your history, and then what what this is about, what the agenda of the love storm is, and and how how you're doing it
1: absolutely well, thank you first of all i you'll have to shut me up so you can just like do one of these, like wrap it up, girl, because I get so passionate, and I will go on and on, but I about fifteen years ago got involved fighting human trafficking, modern day slavery. I was enlisted to do this by my very, very, very close forever friend since I was seventeen. And I was in a moment in my career where I thought that I'd made a mistake. I didn't want to be an actress anymore. I was having what I call my young life crisis. I got the midlife crisis out of the way early, is what I always say. And my friend was it's like, "She's my friend from New York, actually, my New York acting school." And she was like, "No, you have such an opportunity to have a platform. Are you crazy? You have to do this." And we went to Cambodia together, and I met actually this is one of my little girls. Let's swing. I have a picture on my phone of of one of our girls, but these survivors blew my mind at their joy, at their love, at their capacity for compassion and forgiveness. And I don't know exactly what I expected, but I, I certainly didn't expect that. I didn't expect the overwhelming. And it was literally overwhelming, the overwhelming love that was poured into me when I thought I was going there to help or do some good. And you went to
0: Cambodia to work with victims of
1: sex trafficking, trafficking, survivors of sex trafficking, and those made vulnerable to it. So we also work in prevention. Our program on the ground works to do what we call our little four, basically our four pillars is like rescue, uh, three pillars, excuse, me, a rescue, rehabilitation, reintegration into society, the idea of being a fully well-rounded process where we're not just getting kids out of a bad situation. And then what do you do? This is yeah, someone's life on their own, right? You exactly. Can't- so we create sustainability. We have vocational skill training opportunities. We have higher learning and college options. So our kids are ours forever. It's an open door policy. One of the things I love about the program personally being an actress is we have art therapy and it's the first thing we introduce our little bubba's to. When they come in and we've rescued them, we immediately put them into art therapy. So you have to understand if you're not familiar with this this particular issue or issues surrounding really severe trauma, it's very hard for survivors to speak. Right. So voice has been shut down, but especially when they're little, when they're children, they, they haven't even gotten their voice and it's already been shut down. So we work really hard in the beginning just to get them to talk. So instead of any kind of for you know force energy of like trying like asking questions, we just give them crayons. We give them looms to weave on. We teach them dance. We teach them acting and singing. Some of the girls both write and sing their stories. Write poetry about their stories. Dance out their stories. And I mean, one of our, our girls. Oh she, I remember she was six years old, and she wanted to do a skit, and she wanted to perform her story. Mm-hmm. You can imagine how horrific this was mm. to be a part of. This is safe in a safe setting of a safe center, but this six-year-old is Oscar-worthy performance, Acting out what happened.: Acting out begging in the streets for money. To help her little siblings who, and her mother who needs to go to the hospital, not making any money, then being shamed by her family for not bringing home money at six years old, and then as a result being sold into the yes. slavery. And she literally, she goes behind a curtain when the point when she's sold and then it implies what's happening to her. And she screams and that scream is seared in my cells, the memory of it. And I thank her for her bravery and her courage to not just survive what she survived, but to be able to use her full instrument, her full wonderful oh, full body to eradicate that trauma from her cells where it was trapped. So that was kind of that soul I was in. I was like, whatever these children need, whatever, the, whatever needs to happen, I'm here for this. I didn't know why I cared so much. And for 10 years, I didn't know. And five years ago, so 15-year-long journey, five years ago, I was having surmounting, building, building, building PTSD symptoms that got to an all-time high where I blacked out in a restaurant, ended up in a stall in a bathroom, have no recollection of how I got there. The general manager had come in to try to help me. I was in the corner screaming, arms wrapped around my knees, didn't know where I was, what was going on, completely lost in space and time. And I realized I needed help. And up until this point, I'd read every single self-help book there was in the world. I have listened to every single podcast. You know, I I was actively going after healing from things that I knew that had happened to me. I experienced domestic abuse as a child in my own home. I experienced sexual assault when I was a teenager in my apartment in Los Angeles. So I knew there were things that had happened to me that justified me having certain behaviors, but it had gotten it hadn't gotten better it gotten worse and that was what sent me into a PTSD treatment called EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing and this is literally the treatment that war veterans go through and it's become popular and really helpful for survivors of sexual and domestic abuses I sat down across to my doctor. I was like, okay, listen, lady, I have fixed myself from here to here. My head <laughs> is clear. My mind is clear. My neck to head. It's all good. Like, I've got some body stuff going on, but can we just make this go away as oh soon God. as possible? I I've got to-, I have I have NAP. NAP. to go. I have to go. Let's <laughs> go. And she was like, oh, bless her heart. she must. If she was Southern, she's not. But if she was Southern, she would have been thinking, bless her heart. Because I had all the signs of someone who had no no idea what had actually happened to her. And two weeks of intake and my very first EMDR session later, I found out that I had been sexually abused as a child for years and my mind had blocked it out. So suddenly I knew why this issue of fighting sexual slavery was so important to me. And I had always taken the stance, which became the amalgamation of my journey and the work that I was doing into the love storm, which we then created. But I had always taken the stance that... Slavery is the one issue in our world that affects all of us. Yeah. We live in prisons of our own making all the time. We mm-hmm. constantly are subject to a taskmaster mind that, that is just there dangling the keys saying, you ain't never going to get this, honey, because yeah. you're never, ever, ever going to be worthy enough. You're never going to be good enough, wealthy enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, whatever the narrative is. And that originates from noise. Talk about infiltration of thoughts that aren't yours and don't belong in your mind. Noise from parents, teachers, peers, the social media this, that's not social at all, news media, my media, entertainment media, wow. all of this language. So the combination of the idea that 8 billion people will be affected by a form of slavery in their own mind. Right. At the very least at the very least, yeah. then how that affected me, how I was so enslaved and yet I was working with survivors of slavery who were so free. And then the actual work and the need for the work that we do fighting human trafficking, all of those kind of came together and culminated in 2019 after I had been in treatment, pretty intensive, uh, like IOP, intensive outpatient for two years. That's and. For the trauma you recovered. The trauma that I had remembered for childhood sexual abuse. And this idea, this, I have to call it a vision now because it was coming to me during meditation and breath work and these different, I was getting this image of mass groups of people meditating together to clear their own mind with the idea of, Ending slavery from the inside out, clear the shackles, those invisible chains on your brain for yourself, doing what Lao Tzu says, you know, healing yourself in your heart. And then seeing healing come to fruition in the world. And so the love storm became the idea. And I was like, okay, I had been cynical and jaded for so long. And I was like, I can't do some hippie tree hugging love shit. Like I can't do that. Like the name can't be like, people are so cynical about love. It's crazy. They will talk to you about hate all day long and you, Go miserate with them all day long, but you start bringing love up and it's like, that's cheesy. That's corny. Dippy. dippy. Right. Dippy. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. The single most important vibrational resonance in all of existence that literally makes existence actually exist. But yeah, corny. No, cheesy. Totally. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So it was late. I was talking to the, my co-founder and I was like, seek. She's Cambodian. And her father, they survived the genocide in Cambodia. And her father, she didn't know until we were actually doing the work that we were doing that he had gone back eight times and rescued 40 people, 40 wow. different people from eight different families, we were wanting to do something kind of uh, launching something that would originate with Cambodia and the, and the love and care that she had personally from her own heritage. And I have, because I'm a blonde Cambodian, well, don't let the honorary I'm yeah. Totally yeah. honorary, <laughs> yes, but we need this to be bigger than just our hearts for Cambodia. This is a global issue. It's in every country of the world. We don't want little waves on the ocean. We want a tsunami. We want to come together, create a network of organizations, organizations that are fighting human trafficking, link them so that we can actually end this shit. You know what I mean? And that was kind of the concept behind it. And I kept seeing this vision of just groups of people meditating together. And that being the feature point of the event. And that if you only ever come to our events or our retreats for the love storm, and you only ever set yourself free, that's okay. We're okay with that. We're so happy about that. But also if you get involved, amazing. And here's how you can get involved, whether it's with our organization in Cambodia or a local organization here in the town we're in. So we created a 22 city long tour that we launched in 2020. And then so did COVID. (laughs) It launched itself all over our planet and wouldn't let any of us travel. So we made two of the cities. We did LA and New York. And then obviously we're forced to, to wait And and we've been able to do sporadic events since then. Unfortunately, we haven't gotten the whole group together for the tour as of yet, because our world has become something very different, as you know. But it's still happening. It's still happening. But the idea of the love storm is come out get educated on the issue of modern-day slavery it's in your backyard it's in every country of the world this is what's happening this is what's happening to our kids especially in disasters and war the children become so vulnerable to being trafficked it just it's hard to believe you're seeing two million children a year being trafficked into sexual slavery and forced labor
0: yeah, no- right so let's just pause on that because i want to talk about I want to really highlight some of these statistics of so people under because I don't think people really understand. I mean, I understand because I'm I work with a lot of the victims and I'm a sex therapist, among many other things. But so, say again, how many people how many children around the world are being trafficked in the sex slave trade? Two million. 2 million.
1: It's really hard to wrap your n- mind around numbers bigger than like a couple thousand. You you actually, your mind can't understand numbers. It's, what is 2 million? That's half the population of Atlanta. This yeah. like the biggest city in the South, the biggest metropolis city in the South. This is an unfathomable about amount of little baby humans who have just arrived on earth, who then become what you become when that torture and that treatment right happens to you and I will tell you from personal experience you become a victim you become a perpetrator and I've been both I haven't done things that are obviously what were done to me, but I have been energetically abusive. I've been psychologically and verbally abusive. I was a pathological liar. I developed all kinds of mechanisms and and machinations and all these different things. And I was very like, the world is out to get me, so I'll get them first. And that was what it made me into. And I've had to live with that. I've had to make amends for that. This is individual. Like When you think of two million it's it's a number that just throws out there but every single life times 80 90 100
0: years who and all the people those people touch or everyone they talk everyone impact everyone they meet exactly only hurt people hurt people so yes so as we have two million poor little things that not only are that do they just in and of themselves don't deserve nobody deserves this kind of trauma right like this is Horrific to even think about, but then to think of the societal implications of that, right? And the energetic implications of that, not only for them, but Absolutely. everyone they touch, right? Everyone.
1: And I work with a lot of really powerful men who who talk to me and confide in me because I'm so open and vocal about this. And they say, I'm either the only person they've ever told or one of very few who will ever know and they'll never tell anyone. And the people that they did tell was a mistake and they never yeah. should have said anything. And what is very common with these men is so much rage, yeah. so much anger. And I'm grateful that they're beautiful men that are channeling that anger and rage into protective energy in our world. But I, my heart for them is that they heal. My heart for them is that they be the protective, wonderful men that they are without that that shadow on their shoulder just yeah. shooting them constantly and if you think about the other side of the the other side the men who don't tell and then you all that rage and anger isn't turned into protection and their power isn't yeah. used for that who did they become and what did do- <laughs> they become hamas exactly i mean it's not funny exactly. but it's, no but like you're you're right the you're being candid gotcha. and it's exactly I'm what I'm laughing
0: it is. at my candidness not the point Sorry.
1: no it's it, because you're laughing at the irony the right. irony is that we create this and this radicalism is born out of rage it's born yes. out, and you know what's interesting about David Hawkins we were talking about that that emotional scale shame is at the baseline right? So, so if you think about sexual abuse perpetration in our world, you can't fathom the numbers because people don't call up and say, Hey, I was abusing people this week. Just wanted to give you. Numbers for
0: statistics and victims so, don't report it very often, too. At least not for decades. If so the
1: underreported crime on Earth is sexual abuse perpetration, especially when it's against children, and eighty percent it's someone that you know. So even our kids that are being sold into sex trafficking, oftentimes it's a family member or you know an uncle, an aunt, even parents, siblings, cousins that sell their their family
0: members into this atrocious. And sometimes unknowingly, sometimes knowingly. But sometimes it's like, okay, we're going to take her and she's going to work on a cruise ship or she's going to work in America for families and make all this money and send it back to you. And so the family thinks, A, they're giving the child a better life and they can't provide for them. And B, maybe the child will be able to help support them. And so they sell the child and they think that this is. And then, of course, the opposite happens. As most of you know, for the past several years, I've been on a pretty intense grief journey and it's been a path of healing. I've shared lots of that healing with you and lots of the healing resources that I found. And I am so thrilled to announce that I am doing my first ever retreat for grieving mamas. So, if you or someone you love is a mama who has lost a child in any way, at any stage, at any age, I would love for you to come join me at 1440 Multiversity. In the Redwoods near Santa Cruz, California, for four amazing days of beautiful, uplifting community and healing. We've got David Kessler, we've got Paul Selig, we've got Catherine Woodward Thomas, we've got me, we've got bodywork, we've got organic food, beautiful rooms. Go to 1440.org. Check it out. It's right there on the homepage. I really hope you can join us.
1: opposite happens absolutely it and i have a young woman that actually was adopted out of an asian country under those the idea that she was going to have a good parents and a life and and so there's so much it's it's well beyond the trafficking of drugs trafficking of arms and humans are the two highest highest grossing most lucrative forms of trafficking in our world now Mm. humans unfortunately are very attractive to traffic because you retain your supply and you can keep using a human being over and again so this is this is why it's so pervasive and i think the idea with the love storm is we invite you into this process at the level that you can be a part of it, right? Because these are really heavy topics wow. and not everybody can stomach it. And that's okay. If you can't, please honor that. Please do not get involved. If you can't stomach it, you will only bring more pain into our world because your exper- experience experience. Right. In your body. But if you can be a part of the process of shedding light and love, I remember trying to talk about the issue of human trafficking 15 years ago in the press and I would do interviews and my heart was just like pouring out all of these things and I'm telling the stories and I think they mean so much. And then later it would be like, oh, so we, um, yeah, so we cut the segment part about your, you know, your trafficking thing. Uh, it's just like super dark. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> i like, what are you talking about? That'd if you, you don't think it's super dark, how do you think it is to live with it? And That's I was... The person
0: who's being... Yeah. I mean, it's so sick. I, I've had similar experiences oh. you know, trying to talk about real issues in the media. They they sometimes want it, if it's a quick sound bite that they can engender fear or get ratings with. But if it's too yeah. painful or it's going to turn people off you know right. or make them too uncomfortable then they don't care about the truth. And we're going to put in the show notes guys all the links to Annalyn's to the Love Storm and where to find out more information so you don't need to write anything down right now but I do want to ask you because I know so much of what you're really public about not only in in work to end this travesty and I know right now you have a new film, a new movie that just got released where your character is someone who clearly has had some significant trauma, but also I feel like the part of the point of her character and the movie itself is that in an effort to not be with her trauma or to not know how to manage or how to heal herself, she turns to this essentially blind faith in something that she thinks can save her. And it brings her, deeper into the darkness. The movie is called Condition of Return. So can you talk a little bit about that, first of all, and in particular, this whole idea, which I love. I had thought about it, but I just didn't really put a lot of attention on this. And I think it's so important that so many of the people who commit these mass murders are often that the school shootings, all of it is part of it is a suicide plan. Right. And that's often at the core of it. So talk about the movie, talk about that. And then we're going to talk about all the stuff around healing.
1: Okay, amazing. Well, yes, I appreciate you highlighting this and and I'm grateful to SAG that we were actually allowed to talk about my film because the strike is ongoing and we received an interim waiver, but a lot of, you know, obviously we're otherwise not allowed to speak about our work at this moment because the studios need to do what they need to do to take care of us. But I think this film is unfortunately more relevant than it was even when I filmed it because talk about the things that make you Massacre individuals, and we're seeing in our world. And one of them is is the blind faith part is religion. It's radicalized religion, and radicalized Islam are the new kids on the block. Unfortunately, yeah. we Christian crusaders, the Catholic Church's Inquisition. We've been massacring people in the name of a deity, in the name of a godhead, for centuries. Mm. And it's it's so we're doing something wrong because we haven't. We haven't eradicated that from our world yet so that's I'll leave that little thing just to float that into a little the, nugget that, that little turn in the that little nugget there just that that <laughs> super 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 surface level di- little conversation piece there I'll let you think on that one but the blind faith this character her name is Eve there's an incredible amount of symbolism in this film so if you're kind of you know curious about the occult or anything like that you're definitely gonna enjoy the film because the writer is just like sprinkling stuff all over it <laughs> Like, oh my God, John, I know exactly what you were trying to say here. I know what this moment was. And he's like, Oh, you got that. And I was like, Oh, you know, I read.
0: <laughs> but but
1: yeah. Eve Sullivan is the character. She has one traumatic incident after another happened to her. Technically, she had a good childhood, according to her. There's always something there, my doctor said, when someone's like, My parents were perfect. And like, yeah, I they? never believe that either.
0: I'm like, Yeah, sure, they were.
1: I was <laughs> like, okay, yeah. No, Yeah, Yeah, you told me 10 stories where they were absolutely atrocious. But sure, your parents are great anyway. So she has a decent relationship with her parents, but she actually has life situations one right after the other that would be severely traumatizing to anyone to have any single one of them happen. And then all of hers happen one right after the other. And what the the National Institute of Justice funded DOJ research says about mass shootings is that 100 percent. 100% of the 172 mass shootings that they researched, 100% of them, the shooter at the time of the shooting was in mental crisis. And when they were grade school, they were 90% suicidal. When they were college age, they were 100% suicidal. First of all, these percentages are insane. You get 48%, 57%, you don't get 90 and 100% of things. This is a mental health issue. The only conversation to be had about this is mental health. And my character's entire mental health situation deteriorated throughout the film. And she did what she did in the first scene. Everything else was flashback, but it was her life proceeding built up to what she did in the very first scene of the film, which was walked into a church With an ar-15 and shot all of her friends and you have to ask yourself or you're invited i'll say you're invited to ask yourself who do you become when life has smashed you in the face one hit after the next and you don't have i'm grateful that i'm an actress and i have the money the thousands of dollars and all the modalities and the time to take off work to go pay for hundreds of hours of treatment that aren't covered by insurance that aren't covered by insurance whatsoever. The only thing was a partial, I have some of the best insurance in the country. I got a partial coverage of my PTSD treatment. None of the other stuff that I was recommended that I needed to do was covered by insurance, right. but I'm in the lucky position most people can't even consider paying for something that's right. not covered by insurance.
0: much have the resources to find the modalities that might help or the clinicians that might help. And then once you do, to navigate all the intake and, like you said, have the money to pay out of pocket. And if yeah. insurance does cover it, they usually cover like four sessions that barely like- breaks the surface of what's really going on.
1: They're like here, 50 minutes, you know, once it's like, it doesn't. So, and my character, my character couldn't afford treatment. Yes. At the end of her going, literally going postal, she couldn't take it anymore. And she, she fell prey to her faith that when one entity wasn't listening, she swung her faith all the way to the other side, like a pendulum Mm -hmm. and believed in whatever would give her what she wanted and needed. And that made her do what she did. And the film plays back in flashback. It's it's flashes of her memory and her mind. So if you take it literal, you can. But I invite yeah. you to think of it more in themes of our conscious and unconscious interaction. And we are the voice of Satan. And we are the voice of God in our own minds. And that is
0: what was happening. She yeah. she, she listened to over. the voice of, of Satan. In her mind, it was Satan that she turned with, to because God had betrayed her and her
1: abandoned her her, her. left her there so yes the film has a lot of themes that are relevant to right now but specifically who are we who do we become
0: after we've been through all of that or like oprah's book what happened to you yeah the cake doesn't bake itself no no (laughs) and so that is streaming guys condition of return we'll put the link in the show notes or Just tell you to look what, I don't know what streaming platform it's on, but we'll put
1: it on several. So yeah, you might
0: just look it up (laughs) and do a Google search. search. Okay. So let's get into, because I know you've shared not only, and you shared here, not only some of the trauma you've experienced, but also that you have struggled or did struggle a great deal with suicidal thoughts and ideation and maybe even intention. I don't know, but that you and i'm i'm with you 100% i'm always like cheering you on when i see you talk about it online you are a big believer in what i would call and what many would call somatic experiencing strategies for healing obviously like you were even saying about the cambodian little girls who were victims of sex slavery that sometimes are especially with trauma there's only either you can't talk because that part of you has been so shut down by the trauma or just talking is one more way of, because when you've experienced trauma and I'm you know, not only help heal trauma, but I'm open about being a trauma survivor myself, you, the strategy for surviving it is disassociation. And so for many of us, especially if you tend to be more of a brainiac and I am that, and I think you are too, talking is a really yummy defense mechanism. I can talk about stuff all day long if I don't have to feel it, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So there's a certain point, and you know, my kids oh, calling up. me out, Doctor Berman. <laughs> so my kids, you know, when they were little, would call me a talking doctor. That was their term for therapist. And I like to say now that I'm a talking doctor that does a lot less talking in her work. As a result, primarily of having gone through it myself, recovering those mem- memories and healing them, somatic experiencing, and working with so many other people and guiding them through that. I'm a huge believer in Not that talking isn't important, but there's a certain point at which, okay, you've said what happened, you've articulated it, you've worked through it intellectually, Mm. but that's just like the first third, if that, right? So with that preamble, will you share some of the things that you found most helpful in healing?
1: absolutely and it speaks to that moment with doctor my doctor when i sat down and put my hands at my neck and my head myself from here to here i had gone through all the mind processes i had and i had thankfully eradicated something that was that is the single largest barrier to any healing process and that's that bottom rung of the vibrational scale shame so i told my doctor i said Shame and I got a divorce. We stated irreconcilable differences, and I have a restraining order against that bitch. So if you notice any, (laughs) shame point it out and I will eradicate it immediately because that bitch ain't allowed anywhere near me. Okay. 500 feet, boo. (laughs) So she was laughing and she was like, okay, this, this client is going to be oh hoot, you know, (laughs) it's going to be a whole situation. But I, I told her things that had I not had the 10 years of working on my mind, I don't think I could have gotten the words out because they, they were things that I personally was sexually turned on by. Mm-hmm. and they were so embarrassing and so shameful and awful. And I felt this big, teeny tiny at the idea that I would think those thoughts and masturbate and get off to it. And, and I just felt so gross and disgusting. And then I would have to do it again because it wasn't a kink, which is yeah. cur- it's something you're curious about, right? It was a fetish and I could not get an orgasm if I wasn't being
0: physically harmed. Yeah. And, and, well, okay, and- we got to pause you right there because what you just said is so important. I know it wasn't the point; it was like a by uh, byproduct of a. Pre- yes. pre- <laughs> yes. of we, can
1: we can stop the byproduct. We can go with the. But let's just
0: pause at the side note here, because this is almost universal. I find with rape victims, abuse victims, sexual abuse victims, when we're talking, I I hear because I hear people's deepest sexual fantasies all the time right so i'm sort of a strange as malcolm gladwell would say outlier in this in terms of what i've worked with and been exposed to and it is almost i would say almost universal but certainly unbelievably common and so i'm saying this to my peeps here because they're identifying with what you're saying it's really normal it's one of our of the ways that we adapt to the trauma especially because often the trauma happened as we were sexually developing so it becomes and even pre-sexual development, you know, many researchers show that the our love maps, as they as we call it, like what turns us on, is kind of imprinted in the first seven years of life. So for many of us who had early childhood sexual trauma, or if you had sexual trauma during your sexual development, it can kind of skew what turns you on. And so I'll have women say, like, the worst thing that ever happened to me was when I was raped. And yet I have these rape fantasies. And the only way I can get turned on with my partner is if I imagine that they're raping me and I'm so, back to that lowest rung on the vibrational scale, I am so ashamed because this must mean that I wanted to be raped. This must mean that I liked being raped. This must mean that I enjoyed it. And I so obviously a huge part of the treatment is helping them understand what you understood in therapy, hopefully, that that is not true it does not mean you want it's it's an adaptive mechanism that allows you to take the power back yes
1: and it was exactly that and i was very everything about me was about power so this happening to me specifically my wiring revolted strongly and so i was never going to be the hides in the corner and never wants to have sex that would to, that would be to admit to giving up my power in my psychology. So I was going to go in there, you know, like a <laughs> I was going to go like a bull in a china shop. Sorry for the analogy. And I was like, "Let's go, boys," you know. And my I would get off to they want me and I may or may not want them back. Yeah. Was yeah. this power, it was always about power. And what is that quote, everything in life is about sex except for sex and that's about
0: power. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: There's thankfully, I don't believe that anymore, but for a long time I did. And, and it was, it was the things that I would share with my doctor. I had a dungeon in my house. I had a custom design that I designed and built a 1500 steel cage dungeon bed with all the hooks and chains. Wow, You had a whole red room. I had a whole red room and then some and every, you know, accessory to go along with it. And I, it was my favorite thing to just terrify the new guy in my life. Like, oh, come check out my meditation room. <laughs> and it was like, this is how I meditate, honey. You better catch up. And, on. and you know what, if you're doing that with your partner and you both are trusting each other and you love yeah. each other. And, and you it's coming be-
0: from a place of, of clarity and, and health. <laughs> You know. Beautiful. Wonderful. I'm so happy. What I
1: found was that every single fetish I had directly related to something that had happened to me. And a big part of it was asphyxiation. I almost died a few times now that I've recalled my memories as a small child because things were put around my neck. And I have memories of white flashing, white flashing, almost losing my consciousness fully as six years old, as young as six years old. Mm-hmm. And these would then, I would have a man put my neck in the nook of his elbow. And if he didn't know what he was doing, I would tell him I knew how to do it. I would say, close off the blood to my brain, not my throat. So I can still get air and then fuck me back awake. Excuse yeah. my French, but literally, these were ways that I would cope. And the poor, beautiful, wonderful men who I would literally just be like, Horrible too. If they didn't do my bidding, and it was like you know, it wasn't like, oh, honey, I want to try this cool thing. Right. It was like, if you don't do this, then get the fuck out. And it was like so horrible. Some of them were really like, some guys were like, I don't want to do this to you. And I'd be like, Well, you're clearly a novice. Yeah. It was just, I would you're just clearly I, a wimp.
0: Get the hell out of here. You. Know,
1: yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I see who the gimp should be. Like, oh yeah, it was. Uh, there was a nasty little side to Annalyn because yeah. of everything that I was trying so desperately to get my power back on. And so because of all of those things that not only happened to me to begin with, I then perpetrated onto myself yes. in, under the guise of being a cons- in a consensual relationship. And then I would go on to go into PTSD treatment and coincide that with SE. I'm getting back to your original question. Byproduct yeah. <laughs> has been fully satiated. The somatic experience work that I did was the beginning of the rest of my life. Because all of that torture was trapped in my cells, and with pranayama breathwork, holotropic breathwork, Wim Hof, yes, I did everything. Plant medicine, I did ayahuasca, psilocybin journeys, psilocybin with MDMA. I haven't tried, but I hear is actually really gentle and beautiful for survivors of sexual abuse because it puts a love energy around the psilocybin that can kind of be intense when it's okay. it's bringing stuff. Okay, so. There's some beautiful, wonderful ways in it. And my doctor is like fully trained and ready to administer DMT and psilocybin as soon as the FDA stops being a dick. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but these are incredible modalities, but breath work, sound healing, sound. If you can't meditate, if it's it's too much for you, if breath work is too intense and it is in the beginning, you will not want to do it because all of your demons come flying to the forefront at first, mm-hmm. but that's how you get them out. But if you can't do any of those, you, if you can get into a sound healing sound bath, your cells will thank you. Your heart will open. It is the most profound way to step into this process. And because I coincided this Kundalini work with my doctor doing PTSD, EMDR treatment, I was able to open these really deep, horrible, scary wounds that made me feel, talk about not feeling like the power issues. I felt shattered. I felt like I was four feet taller. That's not four feet. That's like four inches, but I was making a little sign on the camera. I felt so small. I felt so insignificant and I felt scared in the world when these memories started coming out. And I used to be this tough chick. I was like, not scared of anything. And it was so confronting. And I had to become so gentle and so self-compassionate and so patient with this process. And I remember seeing the parts of me because of all the disassociation and all the parts I was co-conscious with very quickly because I had had, I had done so much with my mind in the 10 years preceding the last five years of the work that I've done on myself, that when my memories came to my conscious awareness. I would see the parts of me that I was interlooping with, so to speak. And I had a strong sense of me. And then I would sense that I was with a part of me. And this, as if I'm with you right now, and the little six-year-old version of me was the part of me that would run from me. And disappear into my mind. And it was so painful. And I would talk to my doctor about it. And she she said, You have to build trust with her. You've made her home very unsafe for a long time. She's got to have trust with you if she's going to take you on a journey into the memories that she holds. Because I kept telling my doctor, I don't, they're her memories,
0: not mine. Like I don't have these memories. They are me. But she did that, you know, that's what we talk about when we talk about internal family systems or parts work or there are no bad parts. Like what you're talking about is so important because I always say that it went back to the original shadow friends with your shadow or dancing with your shadows thing. Like there are these parts of ourselves, the traumatized, devastated, abused, disenfranchised, grieving, lost parts of ourselves that we all have. And we are scared as shit to go into the basement where they are all hiding. Like, I remember being a little girl, most of us, we had this basement in our house, you know, and it was dark and danky and scary. And even just going by the door in the kitchen to the basement, I'd like zip by it, you know. A little <laughs> faster, I'd walk a little faster. And like, we treat those parts. Like, if I turn on the light, I'm not even going near that basement. It will take me over. It will destroy me. It will, It is so freaking petrifying. But when you turn on the lights, and you actually look at them, they are these sweet, innocent, lost, hurt, little angel parts of yourself that have just been cowering in shame and fear and grief and loss and just want to be safe enough to be held and reintegrated. And the scariest thing, I think, and you often need you do need support from this, is turning on the lights yeah. you know, and being willing to go there.
1: Be willing to go there. And I love that analogy because it brings to mind Eckhart Tolle, who I love so much, but he says, Eckhart Tolle, the author of Power of Now and New Earth, he says, it can never be as dark as it was before you turned on the lights. And that the idea that even if you flip the light on for half a second, You're suddenly going to know like, oh, there's a big couch there. I won't stub my toe on that. Maybe you'll hit your toe on the coffee table, but you won't hit your toe on the big giant couch that you now see looming. So even a flicker of light is helpful. And I know that I had flickers for a decade. I had flickers of light. And then when my body was actually in a place where it could remember, that is the point at which my memories came back. And it's interesting, Laura, because it came on the heels Of me finishing my last spread too thin, tended to be a workaholic, agrees to everything and everyone, and gets on a red eye after a hundred hour work week. Part of myself, when I finished my last commitment outside of myself in June of 2018, two months later my memories came back.
0: Isn't that beautiful? How we do that for ourselves? They were Mm -hmm. those parts of you were like, okay, we'll just chill here. Can't come out right now because she will stop functioning. Let's wait. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> until
1: it's all
0: of the stuff is done. I and love I love that about ourselves, how we do. I, do
1: I honor those parts of ourselves. There's so, it's such an intelligent design, <laughs> such nice. an
0: intelligent design. Yeah. Such a beautiful conversation. I was such a fan before, but I'm even more of a fan of your authenticity, your heart, your grace your willingness to be raw and filterless like I am. I mean, I recognize a sister right there.
1: <laughs> and,
0: you know, it's all in service to love. So I am so, so, so appreciative for who you are and what you do. I'll put all the links in, guys, but you can check out The Love Storm. You can check out the new movie. You can learn more about Anna Lynn. There's so much to explore. And I thank you for joining us. Thank you so much and
1: thank you for holding this forum for for the men and women who listen and I hope that you know if if there's any takeaway I would say the last thing I would say is my pain used to be something that I wore like a badge of honor. I had a high tolerance for pain and I could take pain and I was I always like to ask in these conversations if you have a high tolerance for pain you should ask yourself why. Mm -hmm. You should ask yourself, why, why did my body have to get to a point where it tolerates pain at this level? So honor your body, honor your pain, but don't wear it as a badge of honor. It is nothing to be held in a position of merit. It is something to be given grace and compassion to and hopefully to finally be something that you're able to to shed and return to what life is supposed to be, which is what it is when we're first here at the very beginning and it's supposed to be love. So thank you for this beautiful opportunity to speak with you and this beautiful platform.
0: Ah, love. We started and ended with love. Yay. (laughs) say sí. sí.